0: Psalm 56 is the first of four consecutive psalms that are going to talk about uh, David uh, fleeing from King Saul. So that is the background for this psalm. The king is Saul, the first monarch of Israel. And David is a young man who is a friend of the king's son, Jonathan. And Saul is jealous of... Over David, because David's a great warrior, and he's gaining a reputation. Uh, that way in every country throughout history, your warriors gain reputations. Dwight D. Eisenhower ends up becoming the President of the United States. So on what basis? The fact that he was a warrior. People heard about him. General MacArthur, George Patton, you name it. And David is a warrior in Israel, and he is gaining a great reputation, and King Saul is jealous of him, and basically wants him dead. So he's seeking him. If you look at the superscription in the psalm, it says this, To the chief musician. So David writes the psalm, and he is giving instructions to the chief musician. And here's what he says. Set to the silent dove in distant lands. Now some of your Bibles may just have three Hebrew words there. Anybody's Bible just have three Hebrew words? Uh, These three Hebrew words uh, are translated this way. The silent dove in distant lands. Now we don't know whether that's a title or a tune. But we know these are instructions to the chief musician. This is to be set. This psalm is to be set. Is it going to be called Silent Dove in Foreign Lands or is that the tune that it's going to be set to? Maybe there was a tune that the people hummed back in those days and it was, that's what it was called. If it's a title, it speaks of David remaining silent like a dove. When he ends up in a foreign land. He keeps a low profile when he ends up in this foreign land. Why is he in the foreign land? Because King Saul's seeking to destroy him, and he ends up fleeing to a foreign land, and when he gets there, he just keeps a low profile, and he keeps his mouth shut like a a silent dove. He doesn't even coo, you know? Or, if it's the tune, it speaks of a tune that is a very quiet, low, melodious type of a song in the chief musician understands those instructions we just aren't quite sure in our day what that these instructions are does it refer to a tune or does it refer to a title then in the superscription you see the word miktam and that means uh... it's this is a song that's to be reflected upon that's what that word means reflection or contemplation and then you see this it's a reflection of david when the Philistines captured him in Gath. So if you want to know what that psalm is about, you need to find out when David was in Gath under the control of the Philistines. And that takes us back to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And I want you to turn there so you can see the background of the context in which this psalm is written. So when you get to 1 Samuel chapter 21 we're going to start reading in verse 10. And when I finish reading these five verses, we'll go back to Psalm 56, and all of it will make sense. Okay? So, we're at verse Samuel, chapter 21, in verse 10. Then David arose, and he fled that day from before Saul. And he went to Ashish, the king of Gath. Isn't that what that Psalm 56 is about? David's where? In Gath. So David <laughs> flees and he goes to the king of Gath. And the servants of Achith or chief said to him, Is not this David? The king of the land? That guy that came to you, that's David, isn't it? And notice they call him king of the land because God has already anointed David to be king even though he doesn't have the position. Did they not sing of him to one another in dances saying, Saul has slain his thousands? David? Ten thousand. Oh, who are the people exalting more? Saul or David? David. That's why Saul is jealous. That's why Saul is after him. That's why David has to flee to Gath. Now David took these words to heart. When they said, hey, that's David, isn't it? David knows he's in trouble. Why is he in trouble? Because he's in Gath. Who do you know that lived in Gath at one time? Anybody know? Goliath. Goliath. David killed Goliath. David was the reason that Gath lost a battle. David knows if they recognize him for who he is, he's in big trouble. David took those words to heart when they used his name like that. And so look what it says. And in verse 12, he was very much afraid of Ashes, Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended madness in their hands. He scratched on the doors of the gate. And let his saliva fall down on his beard. He started drooling at the mouth and acting like he was a madman. <laughs> and Achie said to his servants, Look, you see the man's insane. This guy's a nut. Why have you brought him to me? This, isn't, this can't be David. This is some nut. Have I need of a madman that you brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And so this is the background for the psalm, we think. Because it's the only time we can find where David ends up sort of a captive in Gath. And a couple of things I want you to know is that number one, it says that David was afraid. Verse 12, very much afraid. He's gripped by fear. Okay, so just remember that. David's gripped by fear. You're going to see that in the psalm. Number two, he acts like he's a madman in order to survive. He's afraid of dying. He doesn't want to die. And obviously we see from them saying, isn't that David? The Philistines and Gath are suspicious of him. And if they know who he really is, if they recognize who he really is, they're going to kill him. In chapter 22, and verse 1, it says, David therefore departed from there, and he escaped to a cave. So, in the end, David finally makes it out of Gath, and his life is spared. Okay? That is the background for Psalm 56. And what Psalm 56 does, it gives us the... It fills in these blanks that we don't really... Have here we only have sort of the overall story in Samuel, so Psalm 56 fills in the blanks and it tells us how David is thinking when all these things are going on in his life. Okay, so let's go back to Psalm 56. Go with me. Okay, so let me give you an outline for Psalm 56. Here's how we're going to divide it: verses one through seven, David's cry to God for help. Psalm one, verses one through seven, David's cry to God. For help. Okay. Verses 8 through 13, David's assurance that his prayer has been answered. David's assurance that his prayer has been answered. Verses 8 through 13. So let's look at this first section. David cries out for help. Look at verse 1. Here is his request. He says, Be merciful to me, O God. Now that word merciful or compassionate is a word that is connected with the covenant. This is covenant language. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, He established a covenant with them, and He said, you will be My people, and I'll be your God. And I'll take care of you. God has promised to be merciful to His people, compassionate upon His people, and David now is calling God to keep His vow, keep His word. He says, be merciful to Me, Because David's one of God's people. Oh, God. And then he gives the reason for the request. Look what he said. For man would swallow me up. You see that? That's why he's praying. That's another way of saying, there's some guy that wants to kill me. (laughs) Swallow me up doesn't mean hurt me. It means devour me. It means chew me to pieces and spit me out. Okay? Uh, look at the the way of of, uh, reaching that goal of swallowing him up in verse 1. Fighting all day, he, this man, oppresses me. So the means of swallowing him up is violence, It's fighting. Fighting how long? All day. Do you see that? All day long. No let up. See, no let up. He oppresses me. So the means of devouring David is violence. Notice, David's talking about one man there. Do you see that? Man, see the pronoun he? One person. Who is that one person? Probably King Saul. That's what we think. Uh, We're not certain, but we think that he's referring here to King Saul. He's fighting him all day, seeking after David. Now, look at verse 2. Notice how the focus changes in verse 2. My enemies, now notice this, plural. Do you see that? Verse 1, singular, one person. Verse 2, plural, enemies. Would hound me all day. Now, is he talking about King Saul's troops that are coming after him? Or is he talking about the Philistines? Or is he talking about both? We're just not sure, but we know that there's a leader, and there are the leader's supporters, and they are coming after David to devour him, and they're not giving up. They are relentless all day long. They are doing this. You see, all day is mentioned twice there in verse one, and uh, verse one, and then it's mentioned again in verse two. Okay. Look at this in verse two: for there are many again, plural who fight, there's the word fighting against, who fight against me, O most high. So, this is the dilemma that David finds himself in. This is the reason why he's making requests for God's mercy, God's compassionate love to be shown toward him. There are humans who want to do something to David. When you look at these two verses, you notice there are two categories. There are humans and there are God. There's God, right? The humans want to do something to David. God is asked to do something for David. See, so that's the difference. The humans want to do something to David. God, David asked God to do something for him. Notice the emotion in these words. Be merciful, verse 1. Oh, God. Look at this. At the end of verse 2. Oh, God. You see that? He's not just saying God. He's saying, Oh, God. This this is a cry filled with emotion. Notice what he calls God at the end of verse 2. Most high. Well, if God is most high, is there anything most than high? (laughs) No, I mean, God's the highest there is. There's nothing higher than most high. So, here we have humans who are trying to do something to David, which is swallow him up. David cries out to somebody who's far greater than any human. In fact, he's higher than even the gods of the Philistines. He is the Most High God, and he asks God to do something for him. So now, that's David's request. Now look, and the reason why he makes his request, look look at his resolve here in verse 3. He says, whenever, and this is really a key verse, I think, whenever... I am afraid. And he certainly is in this situation. We found that out, didn't we? How afraid was he? That he acted like a madman. <laughs> How afraid was he of Saul? So much so that he ran into enemy territory to get a him. Of Saul. Whenever I am afraid, look at this. I will trust in you. Notice the verb, will, future tense regardless of time or circumstances. This is David's default strategy. Whenever fear overtakes David, his default strategy is to rely and trust on God. And this should be our default strategy. Whenever we're afraid, and it doesn't matter what we're afraid of, We should trust in God. Now I want you to answer, finish, complete this sentence, okay? Whenever I'm afraid of, and you just throw the word in there, whenever I'm afraid of my boss, I will what? Compromise, cow down, cower, what? Talk about him behind his back? You know, what are you, what is it? Whenever I am uh, afraid of being sick, I will go to my shell, won't tell anybody. See, you can say this for yourself. Whenever I am in the middle of a tornado and afraid, whenever I am, you know, whatever the situation is, you know, challenged to do something. And I'm afraid I can't complete it. I will say, like, no, no, ask somebody else. The solution is always the same. Whenever I am afraid, and fear it strikes every one of us, no matter how brave you are, and whatever the situation and the circumstances are, when that fear comes upon you, the solution is, is to trust in God. This is a a maxim that we can live with. This should be a principle of our life. Now, when you look at verse 3, I want you to notice something. He says, Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. This means that fear is an emotion. Do you see that? Fear is an emotion. But faith is not an emotion. Faith defies emotion. Notice that. Notice, he says, I will trust in you. Notice that faith is an act. It's an act of will. Fear can come upon you, but in response to that, you're to do something deliberately. You are to deliberately trust in God. Notice, fear, or faith, has an object. And here it's you, which is God. And you're going to see that faith conquers fear. Every time, faith conquers fear. So, what we have here is we have David's resolve. Whatever I'm afraid, and he is in this situation, and whatever that happens in the future, I will trust in you. Look at verse 4. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I will praise his word. That's in the future. I will trust in him, and guess what I'll do? I'll praise his word. Now, when we're talking about praising His Word, God has given David a word. God says, I will care for you and I'll protect you. He said that to the nation of Israel. That's what I'll do. And David says, I'm going to take Him up on it. I'm going to exalt His Word. I'm going to trust that He will do exactly what He says. In God, verse 4, I have put my trust. Look at that. I will praise Him. That's in the future. And guess what? In the past, I have put my trust. See that? Look at His desire here and His determination. I will not fear That's future. So in verse 4, you have future, past, and future. And then He asks a question. So what He's saying is, I trusted God in the past. He kept His word. I'm going to praise Him for doing that. Uh, I will trust Him in the future. He'll keep his word. I'll praise him for doing that. And then at the end of four, he comes to a conclusion. He asks a rhetorical question. And here's what he says. What can flesh do to me? What can man do to me? And the answer is what? Nothing. Not if you trust God. Jesus said, Fear not him that can destroy body, Only. But fear one person. That's God. Don't fear what man can do to you. Okay? Now, he says, What can flesh do to me? Okay. He lists six things that they can do, but they're not ultimate things. Look what he says. Six things that, they, that these people are trying to do to David. Verse 5. Number 1, All day they twist my words. That's the first thing that they're doing. Saul and his enemies, and maybe the Philistines, Twisting his words. They misrepresent David. You ever been in a situation? When's the last time you were in a situation? When someone took your words and twisted them. Turned them around on you, Made it look like you were... crazy. Or, you know, or whatever it is. You ever had anybody do that to you? Put words in your mouth? I didn't say that. That's not what I meant. You'll always have people... Who are trying to twist your words. And they were trying to twist David's words. Look at the next thing. All their thoughts are against me for evil. Negative. Look at this. Criticism. you have people in your life that are critical of you? Think of that person in your life that's critical of you. They never said a nice thing about you. They're always thinking evil thoughts about you. They're really against you. They're not for you. These people are against David. Look at the next thing. Verse 6. They gather together. That means they unite. Power numbers. You have certain individuals in your life that get together talk about you. I wonder what that person really believes. I wonder is yeah, she's not such a good mother-in-law is she? said. You know, whatever you you know what the situation is in your own life. This is what they were doing with David. David's the people of Israel, the soldiers of Israel, getting together and they were talking about David. See? Then in verse six, they hide. Look at that. Out of (laughs) you, you don't see them. They're spying on you. They're doing things behind your back. Yep. People that are doing things behind your back, you know they're talking about you, you can't see it, but they've gotten together, they're out of sight. Look at the next thing. Verse 8. They mark my steps. They mark my steps. That means they are watching where David is going and they're ready to ambush him when they have an opportunity. They're watching his steps. And certainly the army was watching his steps. And just trying to take, find an opportunity to take advantage of him and overtake him, pounce upon him. And then look finally in verse 6. When they lie in wait for my life, their ultimate goal is to kill David. And there are people in your life that want to do the same thing to you. These six, this is a six- Step process. And their goal is to destroy you. To kill your reputation. To kill your spirit. To kill your hope. To kill your faith. To make you look little. And this is what David is up against. And he knows that's what they're trying to do. And then he says this in verse 7. Shall they escape by or end their iniquity? Will they get away with it? That's what he said. Will they escape? Will they get away with murder? Will they end up killing me and getting away with murder? And what do you think the answer is? No, they're not going to get away with it. There's somebody that David has called to be on his side. He's not going to allow this to happen. So we have David's request at the end of verse 7. He says, In anger, cast down the people. Oh, God. So, see, here's David's request. They want to knock me off. They want to get me, kill me. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Lord, you take care of them. And notice that verse 7 ends the way verse 1 begins. Notice the words there in verse 7. Oh, God. You see that? And Look at verse 1. Be merciful to me, oh, God. That's how we know that that's the section. It goes Section 1 goes from verses one Verse 7. That's a section in this particular psalm. Now we move to the second section. David's assurance that his cries are heard and that his prayer is going to be answered. Look at verse 8. Talks to God. You number my wanderings. I'm having to leave Israel and wander out into strange lands. And guess what? You number my wanderings. Wanderings. That means that God watches your every step. He knows where you're going. He knows where you are. You might not think He realizes where you are. He does. He not only numbers your wanderings, He numbers every hair on your head. I mean, That's how interested He is in you. He watches over you. And then look at the next thing. You number my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. What in the world does that mean? Put my tears in your bottle. An old practice, ancient days, where when somebody was suffering and their relatives gathered around and they didn't know whether they would make it or not, what they would do is they would persons, tears would fall out of their tear ducts and they would capture those tears in a little bottle. And they would save those tears. And every day they would look at them and they would empathize with that person who was suffering pray for that person to get well. And uh, David says that you know, my tears, in a sense, are precious to you. You've captured my tears. You're empathizing with me. You know what I'm going through. It's not like I am, have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I know you haven't forsaken me. You're involved in my life. And so he knows that God has him on his mind. That's what that means in verse 8. And then he says this, are they, which means all the things of my life, not in your book? And the answer is yes, God keeps a record of everything in our life. Nothing gets by God. He has his eye on us. Whether you realize it or not, that should encourage you. The God of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. His eyes travel to and from throughout the world. He watches. He knows everything that goes on. He empathizes with us. Not only does he watch and care over us, but look in verse 9. He says this. When I cry out to you, and that's what he has done in verse 1. Look what he says, when I cry out to you, then... My enemies will turn back. They will run away. When I cry out to you, my enemies will run away. That's the power of prayer. That's what Dr. Davis was talking about. We don't understand the power of prayer. When we cry out to God, what does our enemies do? Turn back. They run away. See? They run for the hills. This is, Paul puts it, you know, if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? We just don't believe it. We quote it. We say we believe the Bible's infallible and inerrant. But guess what? Do we really believe it? If we believed it, we would practice it. So he makes this affirmation. And then in verse 10 he says this. This I know. Look at that. The into verse 9. This I know because God is what? He's for me. God's for you. He knows that when he cries out to God, the enemies will run away because God is for him. And if God's for you, it doesn't matter who's against you. And then he reaffirms this in verse 10 when he says, in God, I will praise His Word. Does that, you, did you ever hear that before? You saw that back in verse 4, didn't you? Right. This is a reaffirmation of what He will do. He says, I will praise you. Because God will keep His vow. He says, I will praise His Word. The vow that God made. In the Lord, I will praise His Word. In God, I have put my trust. Look at this. He said all of that in verse 4. Verse 5 up there. He's just reaffirming it. Then he says this. The end of verse 11. I will not be afraid of what man can do to me. Now, he was afraid at the beginning of the passage. But by this time, he's no longer afraid. Now, It's not like things have changed from the beginning of the passage to the end. What this psalm is about is what it was like back there when David was running from Saul and he was in Gath. He said, at the beginning, I was afraid. And then I remembered the default position. When I'm afraid, I'll what? Trust the Lord. And I did trust the Lord. And suddenly, it all came back to me. God's kept a vow. Has a vow. He'll keep it. I'm going to praise His Word. He's going to keep His vow." I'm going to praise him and exalt him for keeping his vow. He's a vow, oath-keeping God. And suddenly he realizes, I'm not afraid of anything anymore. And that's why you saw in 1 Samuel 22 and verse 1, he just walks out of gas and he escapes just like that. And God frees him from the enemy. So it becomes, this is David's refrain right here. Verses 10 and 11 and verse 4 and 5 are David's refrain. And now David makes a solemn promise himself. Look what he says in verse 1. Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you. This is his pledge. This is his oath. He says in verses 4, and 11, verses 4 10, and 11, I made a promise. And my promise was... I would praise you. That's my promise. I made that several times in this psalm. I promise I'll praise you. Now, he said, I'm going to vow. I make a vow. I take an oath that I will do it. And when you take an oath, according to verse 12, it's binding. You see that? Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. So David now vows to praise God no matter what. You can make a statement that's untrue and get away with it, but when you make a statement and it's a vow or an oath, and you break it, you won't get away. If you go before a grand jury and you raise your hand and you lie to a grand jury, that's more than lying. That's what. If you lie to the FBI in an investigation, you're going to end up in jail. It's not like just lying to your friends. This is a vow. And David makes a vow. And he says, God, you can count on it. I'm going to keep my word. I am just going to praise you and praise you and continue to praise you. And here's his reasoning. Verse 13. For you have delivered my soul from death. We don't know if he's writing this before it happened. And he sees it as if it has already happened. Or he wrote this verse after it happened. He says, but you have delivered my soul from death. Maybe he's talking about in the past. In the past you delivered my soul from death. I know that you kept your vows. Have you not kept my feet from falling? And the answer is yes. To what end? For what purpose? That you've saved me from death, you've kept me from falling. To what end? For what purpose? That I may walk before God in the light of the living. In other words, I'm not going to be put to death. They're not going to catch up with me. They're not going to kill me. You're going to keep your promise. And guess what? And as a result, I'm going to pray this uh, Very similar to what Psalm 1 says. The last verses of Psalm 1 where it says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous. That's what David says God does here. But the way of the ungodly shall perish. But according to this psalm, David will not perish, he will walk in the light of living. This is a very encouraging psalm. I imagine that when Israel, long after David was dead and gone, long after Solomon was dead and gone, long after the kingdom divided, and the Jewish nation ended up captivity to the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Persians and every other group, they would turn back to this psalm. And they would claim this psalm as their own. And they would say, Lord, we know that we're captive now, but if we trust in you, you will deliver us. And they held on to this psalm for guidance and comfort. And we should do the same. Amen? Next uh, week, we'll pick up at Psalm 57. Lord, we thank you for uh, showing us the importance of prayer. Just talking to you, realizing that you're our Father. You have a loving relationship with us. You've promised to protect us from ourselves and others. But Lord, we too have to keep our vow that when danger comes, that we trust in you, we turn to you, we rely upon you. And then Lord, we will praise you when we are delivered and we're freed from the, the power of evil and even of death. In Christ's name.